We're in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Jonah. And so our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, uh, where Jesus is talking about Jonah, just as Brandon was saying. I said at the beginning of the service that one of the things we believe is that God, through Jesus Christ, has loved his people more than we could ever imagine. And I stand by that statement. But love doesn't always look like we think that it does. Uh, Some of you are in the women's Bible study right now reading a book called Bold Love, and you're learning about that. And uh, this passage is a little bit about that. Because it says in the book of Matthew that Jesus came and he looked from a hill down on Jerusalem and he loved it. And he said that he would spread his wings over it if only his people would gather under his wings. But then when he goes into Jerusalem, we hear things like from our passage this morning. This is Matthew 12 beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater Then Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Amen. I have often uh, referred to those early days uh, when uh, I, early days of my life when I lived in a town called Encinitas, California. I was a student at a local community college there. One of the deals with my family and my father particularly was with five kids in the family uh, we all we all weren't going to go to big fancy four-year schools dad made it clear that we went to community college first and then if we earned our our stripes by way of our grades then we could uh, go on to a school of our choice so uh, I was down at my parents uh, beach house in Encinitas California suffering uh, and having a great time I was uh, an 18 year old kid uh, going going off to college. And Encinitas was a <clears throat> neat little town. It's very different now than when it was when I was there. It's very much overgrown and overbuilt right now. But when I lived there, um, it was a place where a lot of the hippies from the 60s went to go and recover. And they were in, into vegetarianism. Uh, they were uh, into Eastern meditation, Eastern religions. And it was really a hotbed for Eastern ideas. 
One of the reasons why was that in 1939, uh, a yogi from India came, and his name was the Paramhansa Yogananda. And uh, I don't know why I remember him, but it's just kind of fun to say his name. <laughs> the Paramhansa Yogananda was one who settled and made Encinitas a place of meditation, a transcendental uh, meditation place. And what you would find if you went around into the meditation gardens in people's backyards, and you would find also that they would have inside their homes uh, places where they would meditate, and there would be pictures illuminating certain figures from history. And so these would be people who would be considered uh, masters, masters who had ascended, ascended to a place of being. I can talk this language. Some of you are going, what on earth is going on here? Uh, who ascended to this place of being where they're no longer in the death-birth cycle, Hinduism, and they are now ascended to a place of self-giving They've reached one, oneness with the universe, oneness with themselves. No longer is there any shadows within them. They've overcome the ego, self, and they are now self-giving. So they have done good things in their life, evidenced by, and of course, one of the great ascended masters is Jesus. You should come to know that these ideas teach that Jesus was the man and Christ is the spirit. So someone like Mahatma Gandhi, he had the Christ spirit. So the ascended masters, there's many of them, but they all bump into the same idea. Now, it's quite a statement then to be making statements about Jesus without letting him speak for himself. And uh, it was quite a humbling thing for me to go into a church and to hear the words of Jesus himself. And they were very different. His, his self-understanding was different than the perception of other people who were making religious statements about him. And so, in humility... I had to receive the Jesus of Scripture and let him speak. And the one thing that he does is he differentiates himself from all other religious teachers. He doesn't join that club. He presents an ex exclusive claims about himself. To receive his instruction requires great humility. And I'm asking that we would do that right now. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, there's a lot of ideas in America about Jesus, who he was, what he teaches, what we should believe, uh, what we get from him. And I pray that in the next few moments uh, we would experience increasing humility among us to receive the very words that you said, Jesus, recorded accurately by Matthew and given to us for our good. Thank you. Thank you that you can speak for yourself and that when you 
speak through the word of God, you come with an authority that is unlike anything else. And so we ask that your binding authority would be evident and it would be present among us and we would say thank you. Father, I am convinced that in the next few moments uh, there will be uh, almost no moments for humor. There'll be almost, I can't imagine any moment that's going to feel light in this room. But I pray that you, through your, the work of your son, will take any undue heaviness in the message away and make us feel and experience your love and to know that love and to be assured of that love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so there's going to be a series of uh, humblings going on. Uh, And uh, as we look at the Bible, one of the most important things we could ever see is when the New Testament is interpreting the Old Testament. When you see that in your Bible, you have gold. And what we are in is a season preparing us for uh, the death of Christ and his resurrection It is a time where the English word Lent is drawn from a a root word lengthen, and the days are lengthening in hours. The actual daylight is lengthening. And the time is being stretched out so that we might enjoy this time a bit more in this sense, enjoy our Savior and his work for us. We're going through a season where we are recognizing his suffering, his sorrow, his difficulties for us. And we are now entering into a, a, a season where we are using the book of Jonah to set up our, our, our understanding of salvation. And Jesus takes Jonah and places him and his story and what happens to him at a key critical moment in his public ministry, in his teaching moment, in his teaching ministry, and he brings it to bear to these scribes and to these Pharisees. So let me first of all encourage you to uh, to look at the text. Be re- just take a look at it if you have it there in your in your uh, in your worship folder, and take a look at your text. And I want you to follow along with me and notice sort of the flow of it, get the get the sense of it. And first of all, in humility, we receive the truth of how we wish to appear. The truth of how we wish to appear. I am inserting all of us into um, the crowd of scribes and Pharisees. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Wow. If you just uh, woke up that morning and you went down to the corner wherever they're talking and you hear the Pharisees and the scribes talking and then they approach Jesus, what a, a, what a beautifully sincere statement. Oh, we would just like to see a, a sign from you. It sort of floats there. It feels sincere, doesn't it? It feels like there could be no other more genuine request of anyone. And, and in fact, a... Uh, if you don't have a, uh, a church background, you're not aware of what Christianity is about, you have never heard the Bible, it would make perfect sense for you to say, now, what are the evidences that Jesus is the Son of God? That would be a great question, very, very sincere. Why should I trust Jesus in the Scriptures? And so that would be a very, very good thing to ask. But this question comes in the context of miracles. In Matthew 12, there are numerous miracles recorded that the scribes and Pharisees were present to witness. 
In fact, we find out that as they see Jesus healing on the Sabbath, a man with a withered hand, they determine in verse 14, Matthew 12, they determine in verse 14, they begin to plot to kill him. So they are, they, um, they are suspect and suspicious about Jesus. They do not want his identity to be known, or as he does these miracles, they don't want him to be seen and understood as the one he claims to be. So they are denying what they are seeing. They're putting it aside. It's interesting that just before this passage, where they ask for a sign, right before that passage, Jesus talks about a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And we wonder what what people he is referring to uh, in that context. They've been given sufficient reason, evidences for Jesus Christ and his identity. They can now come to a right conclusion about him, and it's just at this moment they are turning away from the facts. The truth is pressing its demand upon them. The truth is bearing down on them, and they do not want to yield to its demands. So they move forward with pretending. They move forward with a feigned sincerity. They still want to be seen as part of the crowd. Everyone's asking Jesus questions, and everyone seems to be eager in his miraculous ministry to enter into it. And so they ask the question, we would like to see a sign. And it's at this point, Jesus says, okay, you'll be given one more sign. But this will be the sign that reverses their intentions. Verse 14, they intend to kill him. He will give them a sign that will foil their intentions. It will be the sign that will expose their intentions. They want to suppress the identity of Jesus. This will be the sign that reveals the identity of Jesus. They are the suppressors of his true identity, and Jesus knows what they are about. In fact, he says that they represent an entire generation. This generation seeks for a sign. Is Jesus authorized to say the things that he says and to do the things that he does? This is the question going around the world in gospel-preaching churches right now. Is Jesus Christ authorized to forgive sins? He makes statements about the new heavens and the new earth and that everything is resting on him, not, not just his teachings, as if he's some holy prophet who gave wisdom sayings. He's saying that the whole of the future of the world is resting upon me. Is he authorized to say that? Matthew 12, 28, he begins to build his case. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He is demonstrating extraordinary authorization to say the things that he is saying because of the power he has manifested. And this question reveals that the Pharisees and the scribes 
wanted to appear a certain way. That is what they put before the identity of Jesus, how they appear before others. There's something about the human condition that enjoys pretense, that is content with appearances, that knows what it knows but chooses to pretend. Does that not characterize our hearts in some way or another? That there's some disconnect between what we know and actually how we, how we live. There's some disconnect between what evidence God has given of his wonder and glory, and yet there's a suppressing going on, and we want to take center stage. We're, we're confused and concerned if, it's not, if we're not the center of it. In humility, we must receive the truth of how we wish to appear. This is what the call upon, God's call upon us today is, is that we as a church would be humble and receive and understand and grasp how we like to be, how we like to impress others, how we like to give an impression to other people. Our neediness before Jesus is something we sort of conceal before others. We should think on that. In humility, we must receive the truth of how we wish to appear. And then secondly, this is really, really quite re- remarkable. In humility, secondly, we must receive the vindication of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 39, he says, No sign, no sign will be given this adulterous generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the... In the, in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jesus' identity was suppressed, or they sought to suppress it, the scribes and Pharisees, but his identity is vindicated by, by God. The resurrection is the capstone of our biblical faith. The resurrection from the dead is really the birthday of the new world. And in humility, we are to acknowledge that we were never really asking for that kind of a Savior. We were never really asking to be delivered from death. We had something else in mind. And it's quite remarkable how unique Christianity is because when you encounter Jesus Christ and you encounter him in his word, here's what happens, is you encounter him as a resurrected, ascended king. That's how people encounter him. That's how I encountered him at 19 years old. Far from being an ascended master, far from being someone who just uh, was sort of selfless in their life, sacrificial in their life, this was an ascended king, the ascended king, who has a rightful demand upon me. For me personally, personally, to encounter The risen Christ, the ascended Christ, was terrifying. It was not Jesus meek and mild, someone sort of coming alongside me, giving me some advice, far from that. He was one who represented the moral perfection of God, and I fell short. 
The resurrection is God's vindication of his son. In humility, we should receive the truth of how we wish to appear. In humility, we receive the vindication of Jesus. Proving that he was who he said he was. That ultimately his death would be a redemptive death. It would be purposeful. It would not be because of Rome's power that he died. It would not be because of the connivings and manipulations of the Jewish leaders because he died. It was the intent of God to bring his son to that cross as an atonement for sin, and then the resurrection is the vindication. This is Isaiah's suffering servant. This is the one I am pleased with. This is the one the world has been waiting for, the one who will deliver us. So, now Jesus is setting up. He sets up the sign of Jonah, and then he moves into something a little bit we didn't, didn't, didn't suspect. He begins to build a lesser to a greater argument. And he sets this up by two examples. One, the example of Israel's enemies, and second, a foreigner. So he sets up um, the, res- the, the, the kind of response that Jesus should have to his ministry by arguing lesser to the greater. Verse 41 the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. Then he brings up the queen of the south, and he says that, he says, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, and he repeats this, something greater than Solomon is here. Israel's enemies responded rightly to the ministry of Jonah. The queen of the south, this is recorded for you in 1 Kings 10, the queen of the south is the queen of Sheba a kingdom that was about 1,500 miles south of where Solomon lived. And she had heard of Solomon's glory, his wisdom, his kingdom, and she came to give him homage, to, to listen to him, and she came with lots of questions. And these two accounts, these enemies of God, the Ninevites, and this foreigner, the queen of the south, they respond correctly to the ministries that God had provided the ministry of preaching in Jonah, and the ministry of wisdom in Solomon. And Jesus brings these two Old Testament examples out as an example of how you respond to what God has provided. Who would know that we can learn and receive instruction from pagans? That's precisely what Jesus says. In humility, thirdly, we receive instruction from pagans. The Queen of Sheba was out of breath, seeing the wisdom and glory of Solomon and Solomon's kingdom. And she says, the half was not told of me, or told to me. Meaning, in humility, we should be instructed by those who seem far from the kingdom, those who seem away 
we would not imagine them responding to the ministry that God has provided. Christ is giving these examples of lesser responses, meaning there should be a greater response to his ministry because he repeats twice, someone greater than Solomon and someone greater than Jonah is here. So for us, we have to, there's a humility that needs to come over us when we realize that God brings about a response in people that we may not think are likely candidates for the gospel. We may wrongly judge someone to say there's no way they could respond to the gospel. And the truth is God can change any heart, God can open any mind, and God can change any life. And so, in humility, may we receive the, 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 the pace setters who actually come from, from areas or places we would not have imagined. And then fourthly, we, in humility, we, we should receive the rebuke that we have lightly esteemed Jesus. That's what Jesus, that, that's what Jesus is teaching. He's saying you don't get it. You don't see the glory of what is being manifested to you here. Miracle after miracle, evidence after evidence, manifesting the glory of God's Son, and they, and they seemed unmoved by it. The Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment. The great moment in redemptive history was upon that generation And they seem to not understand it or grasp it. His greatness, his glory, his mercy, his mission, his loving kindness. Something greater than Solomon is here. And lastly, our last point. In humility, we receive the warning to be genuinely converted. I'm wondering if the story of Jonah or even this text in Matthew 12 feels a bit distant from you. It's, just, it's sort of good, but it's, it's sort of not, not touching you or it's not impacting you. Here's one of, the, one of the more rattling aspects of this passage. How Jesus then moves on, if he hasn't illustrated a, res, a right response enough, he goes to one more illustration I sort of wish he hadn't. He goes to one more illustration of what it's like to wrongly respond to him. And it follows up this passage about the sign of Jonah. And so we read here, he talks about a spirit. Verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Notice we're entering into the spiritual world of spirits. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. The illustration of the house, quite a zinger. 
Jesus, now, it's interesting how to, how to interpret this, how to rightly interpret it. First of all, we could start with the generation he's talking to. He's saying this illustrates the generation that he has been encountering. They are like a house that was swept clean. But the wrong response to Jesus has now left them in a state of unbelief and evil spirits have come and made their condition worse. So Jesus, in his ministry, his miracles, he's sort of like he's he's sweeping the the house clean, helping, helping them see, helping them get back in right order. He's done good among them. And now he is, he's, he's telling them that they have not spiritually grasped who he is. They've remained hardened in their unbelief. They have not been reoriented to him, redirected to him. And to encounter Jesus Christ is not a neutral event. Something is happening spiritually whenever we encounter Jesus Christ in his full authority as the Son of God, miracle worker, evidence producer, something is happening when we turn in unbelief. You could argue from this text, it may have been better for, to, for you to have not heard. Now, I would like to go back to the ascended master Jesus. He's a much easier one to deal with. He has good intentions. Uh, he has uh, the he his everything about him is acceptable to um, the modern mind, the postmodern mind. He sort of he sort of moves with the the spirit of the age. He's uh, and he he's he he's he's not he's not as direct as this. He doesn't warn. He doesn't warn anyone. In humility, we as a church should receive the warning, the warning to be genuinely converted. Genesis 6-5 tells us that the intent of the heart is evil continually. What we would be looking for in conversion is a change of heart, a, a change of desire. To be converted is the beginning of a life that is contrary to the nature you were born with. It is to encounter Jesus and to continue to ask him, sweep me clean. Keep sweeping. Keep sweeping. There's many, many corridors. There's many, many closets. There's many, many things in my life. Keep sweeping. The Pharisees saw no need of him though they had seen many, many miracles. The scribes and the Pharisees and so many in that time concluded that Jesus was not needed. They could maintain their house by themselves. John Owen, one of the great Puritans, says that one of the core mistakes people make is that they can't perceive their interests in spiritual matters. They can't perceive it. They can't see it. In a word, 
we don't get it. It means we don't perceive what danger we are in by a hard heart. We don't perceive what danger we are in at playing church. We don't perceive what danger we are in by keeping Jesus at arm's length. We just don't perceive it. We don't don't see that it would be most in our self-interest to perceive these things. John Owen and others would say, it's okay to be selfish at this point. To think about your soul. Your, Your soul needs... Jesus more than a comfortable life. You see, but, but we, don't, we don't, at that point, we don't, I, I, I don't know, how, how can that be? How, at that point, we don't perceive the warning. Who would have thought that Jesus would speak about the resurrection, his own resurrection, and at the same time give a warning as if he could be dismissed? And is that not how history is sort of unfolded. He's just sort of dismissed. But he comes with his authority and his grace and his mercy and he presses himself upon us in the best possible way and he converts us when the evil, the intent of our heart was evil continually, Genesis 6-5, and he changes us. And by his grace, Our state is not worse than the first. It is now getting better because he is in us and his spirit is in us. So let me conclude. The scribes and the Pharisees sadly figured out how to have a religion without needing God. And they also figured out how to have a religion of glory without God at its center. The resurrection will be our Capstone for glory. The glory of their religion was their status before people. That was working for them. That was the power that animated their lives. How they were seen by others, the status in their community, that was their religion. In their plotting and in their planning, they would not cast aside their vain imaginations, which said, We can still have what we want, though we have seen Jesus. Abundantly supply evidence of who he is. We have seen what we see, but we're going to pretend that we have not seen it. And they also sadly figure out how to have religion without resurrection. And so, not wanting to see, and this is probably the hardest thing for me to say this morning. Not wanting to see, Jesus grants their wishes. And this should be the cry of our hearts. Don't let me have what I want. Change me. So, here's how it unfolds. Jesus knows they're plotting against him, and the plot is allowed to continue. They are allowed to want their wants. And the whole of the earth, or the whole of the world, gathers on, on Mount Calvary. And they're represented by a few voices. We are there. You are there. And Psalm 22 is quoted, and here's how it goes. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him. It's a prayer, it's a prayer of mockery. 
we all join in that prayer of mockery. There on that hill was a house, a body, that never once had an evil spirit in it. And in a mockery and a prayer, it was uttered for Jesus as he died. Well, the only one left to save him is God. And the unspoken is good luck, because you're clearly not who you said you were. And then he dies. And the great miracle is going to happen. And the miracle is the father vindicating his son. My son is who he said he was. And the signature event of Jesus is his rising from the dead. It will prove that God is on the side of righteousness. Isn't that what we want in every great novel? That there's some sense in which righteousness wins? Isn't that what you want in a really good movie? That the evil seems to be just overwhelming the plot? It can't be. And this weak little hero, someone or, or heroine, someone, and they rise up and they do what is impossible and they come through against, against all odds. All great stories are rooted in the story of redemption. So let's conclude where we began. It started with a question. Our text started with a question. And our passage is about the need for true conversion. And so here it is for us. How do we prove conversion is underway in our hearts? And I would suggest to you, it's by the questions that you ask. It's either a question that is rooted in arrogance and pride. Prove it to me. Or it is a question that arises out of deep humility and a new sincerity. I was part of the crowd that asked for a sign. I was part of the crowd that mocked you. And you did not let me have my desires. You gave me. And here's my question. Why did you give me mercy and not justice? And the one who asks that question is most likely on the road to real conversion. And their house is being swept clean. Now may the whole of our lives be seeking the answer to that question. Why did you give me mercy and not justice? As we await the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of all things. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for these humble reminders that we are in this story. We are on these pages, Lord. May it not be, Lord, that we would ever present ourselves otherwise. Jesus, may you time and time again manifest your resurrected glory in our midst. Lord, may we bear witness to your resurrection in how we worship and how we live. Lord, we are flawed, but we want to provide a sufficient evidence that you rose from the dead. We are weak to do it. We thank you for your spirit that is among us and in us. Keep sweeping us clean, Lord. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.